Thank you, Nicholas. Good morning. Good morning to all. My name is John Keough. I'm a partner with the law firm Clyde & Co. here in New York. It's a global law firm. We specialize in maritime and shipping, and I am the co-head of the firm's North American practice on shipping, trade, and commodities. We have, a, we have an exciting panel here to address all of those issues you've been wondering about on IMO 2020 in this roundtable. Is it disruption? Is it opportunity? Is there a green vision or is it a safety hazard waiting to happen? Let me be, I'd, I'd like to introduce first briefly our distinguished panelists. To my left immediately is Joe Hughes, Chairman and CEO of the American Club. Next to him is John LaRice, Technical Liaison, liaison Manager for ExxonMobil Marine Fuels. Next to him, we have Mr. Ioannis Zafirakis, the Director, Chief Strategy Officer and Secretary of Diana Shipping. Next to him, we have Mr. Frederick Kennedy, Kenny, excuse me, Director of Legal and External Affairs of the IMO. Then we have Mr. Hamish Norton, who is President of Starbolt Carriers. And on the far end is Mr. Roger Holm, Marine Business President and CEO of Wartzilla. Let me start off, please, if I could, with uh, John Lloris. John, could you give us just a brief sketch of what this 0.5% sulfur cap means and what are the main concerns that ExxonMobil see in regard to the, uh, the potential consequences? Sure, John. <clears throat> I think we're facing an unprecedented change in our industry. And we're going to move from a fuel procurement to a fuel management situation. And both shoreside and on board the vessel. And when I talk about management, purchasers who go out and buy the fuel, the bunkers, and again, whether it's uh, vessel owner operators uh, or time charterers, going to have to start having discussions with their trusted fuel supplier. And I emphasize the word trusted. It doesn't matter what your fuel of choice is, whether you choose a compliant 0.5% fuel, scrubbers, high sulfur fuel, a gas oil, or maybe a niche market, LPG, any of the other type of fuels that are available out there. You need to start having that discussion. Look for where you need fuels for your particular ship. One of the things we know is there's a lot of different choices out there. <clears throat> the shipping company that picks the right choice for their particular vessels, not their fleet, but individual vessels for trading pattern and type, they pick the right fuel, they will win. The companies that pick the wrong fuel are going to struggle. So they need to have these discussions now and start talking about sourcing that fuel where they need it. One of the concerns is things are going to be changing in the future. So are this, the fuels you need going to be available in the ports you want? Look at term contracts versus spot markets, at least for the first part of 2020. And then also we have to talk about the vessels, right? You need a switchover plan. How is the vessel going to get from 3.5% sulfur fuel, get their tanks clean, so January 1st, 2020, they will be compliant? When port state officers come on board, they're not going to face fines, captains hauled off to jail, or the vessels impounded. Additionally, 
changeover. What are we seeing in the market out there? With the 600 or so refineries, all the different fuel suppliers, the opportunistic blenders, there is gonna be a lot of different types of fuels. <clears throat> right now in the market, we see about one half of 1% of all deliveries have compatibility problems. With all these new types of fuels, we know that will go up. Vessel operators, the engineers on board, need to come up with procedures and plans to keep these different types of fuels separate because you don't know whether they're gonna be compatible or they will cause problems on board. Shoreside personnel that are, are purchasing the fuel need to get some kind of information of what type of fuel it is. Not only does it just meet the specification, the ISO 8217, but what type of viscosity? Is it paraffinic? Is it aromatic? Get this information to the engineers on board so they know what to do and how to manage. They need procedures in place. And of course, lastly, emergency procedures. If they do run into problems, what do they do? How do they manage? Can they change over to a gas oil in an emergency and keep the propeller turning and the lights on? These are just a few of the challenges that we in the industry face and have to work together to solve the problem. Thanks, John. Hamish, what are your main concerns with the upcoming IMO regulation as a vessel operator? Well, uh, you know, we have um, decided as a company to put scrubbers on our whole fleet. Um, so our main concern as a company is making sure we have access to um, three and a half percent uh, sulfur fuel um, after 2020 when relatively fewer people are going to be using that fuel. But um, <coughs> since the refining industry seems to uh, be about to have a significant excess of that fuel, we're frankly not that concerned with availability. We, we are making inquiries as, as John Lloris suggested was a, was a good idea. Um, uh, among our suppliers to make sure we know where to get it, but um, we, we think we'll be able to get it. Let me ask you, uh, the, uh, the regulation is designed... Oh, sorry. Let me ask you, the, the uh, regulation is designed to improve air quality and remove emissions from the air. Don't scrubbers, let me, picking up on what Knut was talking about, don't scrubbers put the uh, the pollution back into the sea? What is your reaction to that? Or well, you know, the, the IMO 2020 regulation was uh, designed to remove sulfur from the air, and sulfur is a noxious pollutant in the air. But interestingly enough, sulfur is not a pollutant in the ocean. In fact, if you let the sulfur in the ocean basically settle out in a layer. It would make a layer five feet thick around the, the, the world's oceans. If you added the sulfur from all of the known oil and gas reserves in the world, it would add a layer about as thick as a sheet of paper, a thin sheet of paper. Um, you know, sulfur is just not a pollutant in the water. The, the water that a scrubber sucks up from the ocean has 10 times as much sulfur as the sulfur that is added by that scrubber. Um, and in, in, in fact, the, the scrubber is adding less sulfur per liter of water than is in Pellegrino water. Um, 
Now, there are other pollutants uh, that come from burning heavy fuel oil or compliant fuel. There are polycyclic aromatic hydrocarbons, there are heavy metals. But frankly, if you don't use a scrubber, those pollutants go in the air and then settle out into the water. If you use a scrubber, those pollutants go straight into the water, but the level of pollutants is small enough that frankly, the, the, the NVGL ran a study with Carnival and found that the water coming out of scrubbers is meeting World Health Organization drinking water standards, except for the fact, of course, that it's salt water. Jonas, what are your views on, on scrubbers and on the IMO regulation? What concerns you? Uh, first of all, let me start by saying that uh, uh, the IMO regulation is certainly towards the right direction as regards the protection of the environment and uh, it is something that should go into our culture uh, as ship owners in every, and I'm talking about every ship owner. And um, uh, we are not, we are certainly not opposed to that. Uh, what uh, we do not understand is how someone can, uh, is um, making a profit after, uh, um, is making a profit uh, with this regulation and how can he do that? Um, uh, it's something completely out of our business to try and make profit with the differences in the price of oil because this is not our line of business to know. Certainly, everyone has the right to take an extra risk for an extra return by investing in scrubbers, but we are here to comply 100% by using the appropriate fuel. And uh, we do not consider that risk of investment in scrubbers to be the risk, to have the risk reward ratio that we want to have as a company in order to, to increase our uh, earnings. Uh, certainly, we are not here trying to persuade anyone not to install scrubbers or to install scrubbers. What we are saying is that um, we do not understand why people that they want to install scrubbers, they are so vocal about it. Uh, actually, I do understand that the reason why they are very vocal is because they don't have the critical mass in order for the price difference between the high sulfur and the low sulfur fuel to be such in order for them to make sense for the investment that they have made. We are at this point right now, and this is why you are, you are hearing the scrubber, the companies that they are installing scrubber being very vocal about it, how nice it is and how much money they're going to be making. It is the first time that they are revealing secrets uh, in order to make money. Uh, actually, I, I would second what Giannis says. A anybody who tells you that scrubbers are a bad investment, listen to that person. <laughs> Nobody should install a scrubber. You have not reached that point yet to say that. <laughs> Reach that point and then you can say that. <laughs> Joe Hughes, the marine insurance perspective, what are your main concerns at the American Club with the upcoming regulation and how are you anticipating that? Well, I, I think, uh, thank you, John. Um, actually, I was very interested in those statistics that uh, Hamish mentioned in regard to seawater coming into the scrubber system, having more sulfur in it than that going back into the ocean. That's very interesting. Actually, although all this stuff you understand, ladies and gentlemen, is way beyond my pay grade, there was an article in the Economist magazine 
uh, within the last 12 months suggesting that this is altogether a bad idea in regard to low sulfur fuel because sulfur in the air apparently has the effect of diminishing global warming or so that particular article claimed. But that's, a, that's a, a subject for another day. Now, talking about we simple hempen homespun types in the marine insurance business. Um, well, I think the attitude of marine underwriters in regard to the consequences of the changeover from January the 1st is one of wait and see. I think that there is potential, obviously, for claims to arise in consequence of improperly blended fuel, consequence of engine breakdowns, all this kind of thing that have been relatively well rehearsed uh, in the industry for some time now. And they will in fact affect all marine underwriters one way or another, I suggest. Maybe not war risk underwriters, but certainly hull underwriters, underwriters of cargo risk, particularly as they might concern uh, general average claims. Um, underwriters of uh, P&I risks, obviously, uh, perhaps most directly there in some respects, and underwriters of charterers liability risks, looking at the thing from the other side. I think that the attitude, as I say, of marine insurers is to wait and see what emerges. Um, it is uncertain at the moment uh, what the practical difficulties or otherwise will be after January the 1st, 2020. Those remain to be seen, but I think that obviously underwriters will respond um, at, uh, to, to claims that might arise in this, uh, in this regard. Uh, they can't anticipate them, I suggest, in terms of rating at this point in time. It is to be hoped that the incidence of at least relatively major casualties is not great, and that rather like Y2K, we get through this with a minimum disruption uh, to the shipping industry and those who underwrite those risks associated with it. But I think that the marine, uh, marine insurance uh, community generally is, as I say, just waiting to see what emerges. What I can read to you, if you're interested, actually, from a, an international group of P&I clubs' point of view, um, is a common position statement that's hot off the press in the sense that it was only issued last week. Uh, in regard to where the clubs stand on all this. Uh, there had been some uh, exchange of correspondence between the Union of Greek Shipowners and the international group on this subject over the past few months, and the boards of all clubs were consulted in regard to uh, how that particular inquiry ought to be responded to. Um, and I'll read the, I won't read it in its entirety, uh, but the relevant bits, I think, are as follows. While the problems associated with off-specification bunker fuels and the ramifications of such problems for property underwriters, in particular, are long-standing and well-known, the recent spate of incidents with contaminated fuel supplies in the US, Panama, Singapore, and Malaysia, in particular, have once again highlighted the, ris the risks of fuel issues leading to machinery damage and the consequent potential for vessel immobilization and resultant ship owner liabilities. Of course, contaminated fuel is related. It's germane to this, but it's not directly in relation to sulfur content. Um, fortunately, fortunately, incidences of fuel specification problems resulting in P&I liabilities have historically been very rare. However, the possible scale of the problem has the potential to be seriously magnified when the 0.5% sulfur fuel requirements enter into force next year. 
while the clubs do not have the technical or operational expertise to take an industry lead in the IMO on such technical issues, it has followed the leads taken by the International Shipowner Associations and the classification societies who have both the operational and technical expertise in the field. One area in which the group has identified uh, where it might be possible to add value would be in collating data and information relating to incidences of fuel problems where these have generated P&I liabilities for ship owners and their clubs, a project which is on the task list for the group club, uh, the group uh, data analytics working group. So that's what the clubs are intending to do in the short term. They are also individually uh, as clubs within the international group providing all kinds of information by way of loss prevention initiatives and so on to help ship owners deal with such problems that might arise. But from the point of view of the substantive risk with the change represents, as I said right at the beginning, it's a matter of wait and see. Thank you, Joe. Fred Kenny, at the uh, at ground zero of the, uh, the maelstrom uh, around, surrounding these issues, Fred, would you please give us the uh, your sense of what the IMO's view is on this upcoming regulation, some of the concerns you see or, or the, uh, what the ground looks like for enforcement, and, um, and I guess first off, is there any chance of delaying this? <laughs> well, let me ask your, answer your last question first, no. <laughs> uh, there is no possible way that the, uh, the sulfur cap won't uh, come into effect on January 1st, 2020. Uh, I'll get more into that as I, as I get into my comments, but uh, uh, the, the period from September 1st, 2019 to September 1st, 2020 is really gonna be uh, quite momentous for the IMO and for the industry, uh, including ship owners, port states, and flag states in terms of implementing not just the 2020 sulfur cap, but the real raft of regulations that are coming online, which include the ballast water uh, convention fully coming into force, uh, a huge number of amendments to the SOLAS convention uh, that will be entering into force on January 1st, 2020, the single window requirements of the facilitation convention, and last but certainly not least, the 2020 sulfur cap. So there are a lot of things that ship owners need to be considering uh, in terms of uh, their implementation strategies for this uh, host of regulations that's coming online. Uh, there's a lot of things for flag states to be considering in terms of overseeing compliance and implementation. And then, of course, uh, to your question, uh, port states in terms of enforcement. So let me just talk a, a little bit about uh, some of the things that are going on with the, the sulfur cap, and then I'll, I'll uh, leave it to some of the other panelists to, to jump in on this. But the, the important thing to recognize regarding the 2020 sulfur cap regulation is that it is not just an environmental protection regulation. It is also a human health regulation. Uh, not only is it gonna be good for the planet, but it's estimated that the implementation of this regulation will save tens of thousands of lives around the world, uh, particularly in port areas. So it's good for the planet, and it's good for the people on the planet as well. Um, certainly there are issues, uh, and the IMO has been working very hard to develop implementation tools to assist ship owners, port states, and flag states in the implementation. Uh, 
So comprehensive guidelines on consistent implementation have been prepared by the uh, Pollution Prevention and Response Subcommittee in February of this year, and we expect those will be adopted uh, at the Marine Environment Protection Committee meeting that will occur next month. Uh, there have been guidelines developed regarding fuel quality assurance, uh, and I think importantly, uh, comprehensive guidelines on port state control. Uh, January 1st, 2020 is coming very quickly. Uh, I, when you look at the guidelines for port state control that have been uh, finalized by the PPR subcommittee and we expect to be adopted by the MEPC, uh, you know, paragraph 2.6 of that, uh, that regulation is significant where it talks about the discretion of the port state control officers. And I think uh, that's, that's something that uh, I commend you to read because uh, while there are certain bright lines I think that port state control officers won't be able to cross with respect to enforcement, I, I think there are certainly uh, use of discretion in implementing the regulation uh, is certainly there. Uh, I just wanted to in, comment on a couple of things that some of the other speakers have said. First, uh, John's remark about making choices, I think that the time for that is now because uh, the, the, the choices are out there and the time to really be thinking about that is now if you haven't been doing it already. Um, and uh, I think the IMO guidance that has been provided can be very helpful in that regard. And then second, with respect to scrubbers, um, there is a proposal to add a new item to the work program at the Marine Environment Protection Committee that was tabled by the EU countries, not by the EU itself, but by the EU countries, uh, to take a look at uh, the wastewater from open, water, open loop scrubbers and to determine if any, uh, any other measures are needed. While we've heard of some of the studies um, that have indicated that it's benign, there are others out there that that reach a different conclusion. Uh, so there have been calls for literature review by the, the group of experts, uh, expert scientists uh, uh, regarding marine pollution, called GAZAMP, I just mangled that uh, name. But um, uh, GAZAMP will be looking at the literature uh, and the IMO will be discussing it. Um, but this is coming and everyone needs to be prepared. Are there any exemptions or waivers that the IMO has been either authorizing or, or through port states uh, supporting? Well, there is what's called the FONAR or the f uh, finding of non-availability of compliant fuel. Um, but the, the important thing to understand about the FONAR system is it is within the discretion of the port state, not the ship owner, to grant uh, that finding of non-availability. Now the criteria for the FONAR uh, were updated by the PPR subcommittee in February uh, to include some operational restrictions with respect to uh, the carriage of compliant fuels. So that possibly could be a, a basis for getting a finding of non-availability. But again, it is up to the port state. Uh, and the, it is not something that a, a ship owner should rely on and just assume that they will be granted that. Thank you. Roger, uh, by 2020, uh, most ships will not have scrubbers installed and they'll be forced to burn uh, higher priced, low sulfur fuel. What are your views on, on high priced perhaps inverted commas? 
<laughs> high priced. You have to see that. Perhaps, perhaps high perhaps. priced. Yeah. Arguably high priced. Uh, what are your views on methods that ship owners can employ to help reduce costs, whether through analytics or other methods? Yeah, thank you, John, and I, I, I fully agree with, with what John said earlier. What we see is that we, we, we need to be much more prepared for more flexibility and look at different vessels, what kind of technology can, can you use and, and what is best for your operations. Um, LNG, scrubbers, low sulfur fuel, in certain segments today, uh, for us, if you take the cruise segment, it's more a surprise if someone would not go for LNG today, that's more the, the basics. Um, so that's the starting point. But then, if we look a bit beyond, but I think also this change might potentially drive it, and we have the 2050 targets just behind the corner from a new build point of view, which we need to start thinking about already today. And there, I believe, data and new technologies will, will help a lot to, to uh, go for that solution as well. Um, and at least how we are seeing it is we have enormous opportunities to look at how to connect data, utilize new technologies in, in, in uh, new ways that we haven't seen yet. Um, I'll give you an example. We used uh, real data from a 5,500 EU container ship going from Rotterdam to, to New York, actually, in this case, just by coincidence. Um, if you use existing technologies by uh, looking at uh, online route optimization, how you run the vessel and just-in-time arrival in port, this fairly optimized vessel could already save 11.7% fuel cost by using existing te technologies that are not connected today. So to do this, you need to get data to flow in a different way between smart vessels and smart ports. And this is a, it's a huge opportunity. I think Knut talked about it already earlier in his presentation. But it's also a big challenge to get the, the right data to flow in the right way to, to optimize it. So, I see the 2020 as one step in this direction. How can we optimize fuel consumption, reduce the emissions for, for shipping by doing this? But at the same time, as said, the 2050 regulations are just around, around the corner from a new build point of view, and we need to start thinking about it. How can we optimize the fuel bill? Thank you. John Luis. I understand that ExxonMobil has undertaken a, a fit-for-use assessment in developing its fuels. Could you explain a little bit about that, uh, sure. what that means? Yeah, sure, John. <clears throat> we started about two years ago looking at the different types of fuels. So we've got uh, a large team in our ExxonMobil research and engineering, scientists, chemists, engineers, working with, with each one of our refineries. Number one, we first start and identify the molecules that we have available and what we can use. What we then do is, is look at those molecules and how we can put them together um, against the specification. ISO 8217 is the, is the most common commercial specification that uh, bunker fuels are sold to. And we look to see if uh, it would meet. But then we do some hand blends and we start looking and doing further tests. And some of the things we found are very, very concerning to us that we think um, will cause problems within the industry. Uh, we're working with ISO to be able to provide some information back to the industry to identify some of these concerns. 
So we, we talked about the different types of fuels that are being developed. Of course, I think probably everyone here has heard about compatibility issues and the different types of fuels. So one of the things that we're doing is trying to make our fuel a little bit more robust. We can't plan on everybody else's fuel and what it's going to be, but if we can make our fuel a little bit more robust, what it will do is if it does get mixed with other fuels, it may not cause as many problems. Some of the other things we found when we were in the development process, things we didn't expect. If you look at combustion qualities for fuels, the, the, the current specification uses CCAI, which is a calculation, right? It's an estimate. This calculation was developed back in the 80s based on fuels that were used in the 80s. And what we're seeing in some of these new types of blends, this calculation doesn't work. Again, we found this out by putting fuel through test engines and other tests we can run. So you may purchase the fuel and it looks like it meets the specification, but then when your engineers try to burn it on board, you'll have very, very severe problems. One of the other significant issues we found was waxing. Right? So all crude, all distillates have, have wax molecules in there. What happens now is, is that typically the most common fuel is 380 centistokes. It's heated up to about 100 degrees C to get it to the right viscosity to be optimized in the engine. So at that temperature, all those wax molecules melt. What happens is, in some manufacturing, what they'll do is they'll dump a distillate into a residual fuel. And that will drop the viscosity very, very low. When you drop the viscosity, you don't need to put as much heat in the fuel. When you do that, if you have high temperature melting wax molecules, it will plug your filters. And again, I think this may be a concern. Now, you may have to have a perfect storm. You may have to have low viscosity fuel. You might have to have the right molecules in there. But unless your fuel supplier is looking at this, you're going to get a fuel on board. It's going to meet all the specifications. The engineers aren't going to get that fuel to the engine because it's going to block filters. And again, what is the problem? Is it a compatibility problem? Is it a waxing problem? All right, the engineers don't have tools on board to identify that. And again, then you have a costly repairs, potentially out of service, and you're talking to port state control, you're talking to your underwriters, um, and it's going to cause problems. So in, when we talked a little bit earlier, what I said was, as vessel operators, talk to your trusted fuel suppliers. Find out what's in that fuel. Find out if they did these type of tests. Are they aware of it? What are they doing to protect your best interests? Thank you. Uh, Giannis, are you installing scrubbers on your vessels? And, and if not, what, what do you see are the concerns about securing supplies of compliant fuel after January 1st? Before, before I answer the obvious, um, uh, I would like to touch upon uh, what it was said earlier about all the parties coming together and discussing and do a proper fuel management. The proper fuel management entails a long period of time. And the problem <coughs> we have in shipping is that there is a conflict between the charters and the ship owners as regards committing the vessels for a long time. In order to do such a planning, you need a long period. And especially when you are at this part of the cycle where uh, you are expecting the market to improve, you do not want to commit uh, your vessel in any discussion or contract about uh, using, uh, about chartering the vessel with a specific charterer for a specific trade 
with a specific amount of fuel, specific ports to be found, etc., in order for the oil producers to produce it and know how much they should have in which port, etc. And because of this conflict and the inability to come into a decision because the charters and the ship owners, uh, they want exactly the opposite thing. When the market is low, not to commit. The charters wants to commit. At the high part of the cycle, where everybody was going to be happy to commit a vessel for a long period and discuss the fuel uh, that is going to be used, the charters do not want to do that. And this is why you saw at the beginning a very big effort from the charters to commit vessels for a long period, giving better rates, uh, provided they use scrubbers, etc., but at this low part of the market. So you have a clear conflict be uh, deciding whether you want to make a profit from the trading of your vessels or uh, making better results by having invested some money in a scrubber uh, for a specific period. Th th this is the main problem, and unfortunately, I'm afraid that the oil producers, they cannot come into a meaningful uh, result as to what to produce and where to have the availability. And w we think that at the end of the day, if there are not enough, what I was saying earlier, scrubbers installed, then it's going to be expensive for the oil majors to have high sulfur fuel all around the world uh, for very few vessels that are going to be using it. It remains to be seen. And it is very unfortunate that we cannot come to a result in this type of uh, discussions. I know that we can discuss, we can um, uh, examine and review the data and see and come with an algorithm somewhere what is more appropriate for our vessels. But at the end of the day, I think that we are not capable of doing something like this. So you're not using scrubbers on your vessels? Uh, we are not investing in scrubbers, as we are not investing in windmills, in real estate. <laughs> it's something out of our business. Hamish, do you have any uh, thoughts on that topic? Uh, well, I think Giannis is correct. I think nobody you should install a scrubber, whisper. especially nobody who isn't me. What do you see as the advantages of installing the scrubbers well, for the, your business? For our business, you know, basically, it, 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 fundamentally, it, it boils down to a hedge against uh, potentially high price of compliant fuel. Uh, nobody knows what the price of compliant fuel is going to be, and, and there's no point asking Exxon because they don't know any more than you or I the market will determine the price of compliant fuel, and nobody knows what the market conditions will be. Uh, I mean, there, there are some people who can make reasonable guesses, one hopes, but in terms of what the truth will be, nobody knows. So the, the, the only way you can really hedge against that is to uh, put in a scrubber that allows you to use uh, residual fuel oil, which, which will always exist. Joe Hughes, from the marine, marine insurer's perspective, uh, are, are there particular charter clauses that insurers are recommending? What is a proactive approach that 
some more detail that you've uh, described earlier? Well, I, you know, ship owners obviously will be thoroughly proactive, I would imagine, in their relationships with charterers and so on, and making proper contractual arrangements uh, for the changeover going forward. And there are plenty of uh, institutions representing ship owners across the world that have issued uh, loss prevention and, in fact, charter party guidance, legal guidance, including Clydenco, I don't doubt, uh, in this particular only hope. respect. Um, there is a BIMCO clause, I think, that has been recommended for use. I think that Intertanco uh, has a clause as well that will deal with the balance of responsibilities in regard to the use of these fuels going forward. Uh, clubs expect their members and will assist their members in reviewing their contractual arrangements. Um, Clearly, there has to be a great deal of thought put into this, and to go back to the general point made earlier on, the greater degree of collaboration between the interested parties in maritime enterprise in this respect, the better it'll be, I think, for um, the avoidance of difficulties, uh, casualties specifically, uh, going forward. Um, if there is a major casualty that results from or is caused by uh, the use of fuel that was improperly blended or otherwise uh, not appropriate for the engine in question, there will be a great deal of legal dispute arising from that, in addition to the insurance issues concerned with the consequences of such a casualty. Um, I'm reminded, actually, of Prospero's words in The Tempest. This is, we, are, we are of such stuff as dreams are made on. And I imagine that, and I don't mean this to be a cheap shot, John, you know me, that sort of thing might be, we are or they, these claims will be of such stuff as lawyers' dreams are made on, because I can well imagine there'll be a great deal of uh, litigation that will arise from this sort of thing. Uh, we obviously expect our owners, um, members in the case of P&I clubs, of course, to act prudently in that respect, but we stand by, uh, ready and willing, to assist them in every way we can in, uh, in ensuring that their contractual arrangements are properly made and that the least exposure from both the owner's point of view, and for that matter, to a, to a degree also from the charterer's point of view and their underwriters, is, uh, is maintained. Fred Kenny, you mentioned discretion given to the port state control authorities in, in enforcement. Uh, when discretion is introduced, that can sometimes lead to disparate results. Uh, what concerns does the IMO have about unevenness in the enforcement regime, and are there any considerations given to managing the collection of enforcement data to try to uh, manage that? Well, certainly the, the IMO's primary goal in, in everything that it does, is to create the level playing field for the industry, uh, uh, both regulatory on the regulatory side and on the enforcement side. Now, most IMO instruments, including MARPOL, do not have specific enforcement provisions in them. It is up to the member states or the parties to MARPOL to create their own system of enforcement, port state control, uh, set penalties, uh, determine what is a violation and what isn't. 
Uh, and that's really within the discretion. Uh, if you look, for example, in the United States, it's the Act to Prevent for Pollution from Ships, which creates that enforcement regime uh, for the U.S., and, and every state should have something. Now, is the, is the playing field level right now? No, it isn't, and we're, we're seeing that as a result of the IMO, uh, the member state audit scheme, where uh, we are auditing every IMO member state to determine how they have implemented uh, IMO conventions and provide them with findings uh, in areas where they can correct uh, issues that they might have. One of the, or actually not one of, the greatest deficiency we're seeing, and the, the number one finding is lack of domestic implementing legislation uh, for IMO instruments, which may include an enforcement regime. So if you have a country that has a regime and one that doesn't, then you automatically have a level playing or unlevel playing field. And we're working very hard to correct that through our technical cooperation and capacity building programs. Uh, but on the more immediate concerns, uh, uh, next week, the Facilitation Committee is meeting, and they're responsible for the 1965 Facilitation Convention, and one of the items on their agenda is corruption uh, in, uh, in enforcement. And they're going to be addressing this really for the first time. They had some preliminary discussions at their meeting last year. Uh, but they're going to be looking into this because that can play a factor in creating this unlevel playing field, and it needs to go away. Thank you. Roger, you mentioned before the uh, looking beyond 2020 and 2050, and can you tell us what, what sort of smart technologies uh, do you see to deal with the emissions reduction goals that are beyond 2020? We, since we are both in the powertrain, but also in the navigation as well as, as gas knowledge, we are looking quite a lot of what we call the, the ecosystem and uh, looking at what can we do to support a more efficient ecosystem in the end, meaning then that how can we reduce the amount of fuel we, we use when we, when we get the vessel just in time where it needs to be. And here we, we have seen a lot of opportunities with, it might be then, um, mechanical solutions, if I call it more traditional ones, to look at the, the profile of the vessel itself. But it's also connecting this then to uh, new technologies, like having the data, as I mentioned before. Uh, and this starts from a fairly fragmented uh, situation in the industry where, where we are not used to having data to move in between the different steps. Um, and I, I mentioned earlier the examples we had. We have, we have other uh, examples where we have simulated this data, where we have seen even higher fuel savings. But the point here is that this is not something we can do alone or we can do with, with one owner or one port only. It needs to be something where you lift it up in a broader context and see that how can we do much more together. Because the, the analysis we have done, and, and it's different in different segments, but the opportunity is definitely there. We, we still waste too much fuel in different parts of, of the operations, not because someone is doing it by purpose, but because we are so fragmented. And if we can lift up this fragmentation and look at how we can get that cooperation more to flow, we have seen already that we can take big steps. And to look at then the 2050, this is just one part of it. This, this will be a double-digit percentage part of it that, that we have seen so far. 
It will be a combination of different kind of fuels. I think John mentioned it already earlier. We, we will see much more uh, different kind of options. We will see hybrid installations in, in certain segments. But we need to remember that, that from an LNG point of view, we had, I think we had the first uh, non-LNG carrier running on LNG 2020. And we have a penetration of the, the fleet today, which is less than 1% but hugely increasing as we speak. So whatever we do for the 2050 regulations, we need to look at the whole distribution chain and what is already available today, and then combine different kind of things. And I, I agree fully with what Hamish said before. Scrubber is, is, is one option for the right installation, but we need to also look at what are the alternatives. And, and uh, sometimes, sometimes we we might say no for without having a better alternative available. And we need to look at how to combine these alternatives. It's doable, but it will be a mix of different things. John Larice, so what do you say uh, to those who question the refiner's ability to provide compliant fuel after January 1st? You have a brief. I, I think you, you have to look at what's out there now. <clears throat> the fuel's out there now, right? And it's going to be where it is and where it is when you, where you need it. If you look at the two different studies that were done, one by Ensys and one by CF Delft, right? One was done at maybe a 50,000-foot view. And they said, yeah, no problem. Everything's going to be good. There's plenty of fuel out there, right? So the industry said, well, we don't think they really have maybe the technical knowledge to look at it. So the industry went out and did their own study, right? Ensys took a look at it, and they got down into the macro level. And what they said was, is, well, yeah, you may have the resid over here and you may have the, the distillates to blend with it over here, um, but it may not be from the same refinery or the same company and they may not be able to put it together. <laughs> so what that means is there is going to be disruptions. Is the fuel out there? Yes, but it may not be where you need it. So if you go into a, a location, you may have to go with a distillate for compliant fuel or uh, a 0.5. Again, this is really, really key. Talk to your supplier what type of fuel you're looking for and also where you need it. Start having that discussions now if you already haven't done it to make sure you lock in your supply so you don't run into problems. And again, you know, as we heard from our colleague here uh, from the IMO side, Port State Control, you know, may not give you a four and, and issue that. And then you're really, really in trouble. You know, is your vessel going to be um, seized, arrested because you're not compliant? Um, because there was an opportunity for you to take fuel, but you didn't have any type of agreement with that supplier? Or is it going to be very, very costly to buy that fuel because you didn't have any long-term agreement and you have no, no other choice? So again, planning and what you know now will help you succeed to meet the requirements of 2020. A brief last remark, Fred Kenny. Any last remarks on? Uh, uh, well, I just and what to expect. <laughs> I would just reiterate what I uh, said to start off. It's it's going to be uh, the next 18 months is going to be probably one of the most busiest times for implementation of IMO regulations in recent history and maybe ever. And uh, the industry, the flag states, and the port states all need to be prepared. I think we have a few minutes left if anyone has any questions for the panel. Next. 
Hello. My question is as follows. Uh, all ship, uh, uh, ship owners uh, are not, let's say, managers of fuels and uh, we rely on charters and uh, availability in the market, and this is correct. And of course, when we have a vessel which is uh, an eco ship, we get a premium because uh, it, it burns uh, less fuel. We have uh, two vocal companies uh, here. The one is uh, Diana and Yanis, uh, uh, who are uh, installing zero percent of scrubbers, and the other is Hamish uh, uh, Norton and uh, Starbuck, and they're installing 100 percent scrubbers. And my question is uh, how each one of you intend to compete in the future market? How, what is the perception of, a, of a, an investor or of a charterer? And, uh, Having heard of all these problems, potential problems and the potential uh, uh, price differentials, uh, what is your attitude about that? The one is 0%, the other is 100%. Well, I think Yanis made some very good points about the com complexities of chartering a ship with a scrubber. And I frankly, in all honesty, completely agree, and we as a company completely agree with the points that Giannis made about the difficulties of chartering a ship with a scrubber. And as a result, uh, we are moving our business model, frankly, away from time chartering and to, to voyage chartering where we do not have to negotiate um, a price per day with a charterer, but we simply negotiate a price for carrying a cargo from point A to point B uh, using the ship of our choice. And the fuel is therefore for our own expense, our own account. Uh, you see, <coughs> this is exactly my point. Uh, you have companies changing their entire chartering policy in order to make a 20% return in the $200 million that they have invested and they may lose money if the market goes the, the other way on their three billion investment of the vessels. Uh, we, are, we are not opposed to that. It's a matter of risk-reward ratio and what do you want to do with your company. You said earlier something, you said something about the eco-vessels getting a premium. You have paid something extra for that in order to get the premium and I'm telling you that the extra that you have paid, you never got a good return back. And you know that very well, that that was the famous story back uh, many years, a few years ago, where everybody was talking about the eco-vessels, and now uh, everybody has seen that it was a waste of money, not a waste of money, but not a very good investment. What I'm saying is we are all competing about our earnings and our uh, returns on our equity invested. We think we have a better use for our money. For example, 
We have recently bought back two times our stock price, our shares, at a 30, 35, 40% discount to NAV. This is a much better investment than installing scrubbers. It's an investment. You have to look at this as an investment and whether you have better use of the money. And this is what we think. I think it comes back to what I said before. There is no one right answer. And again, either competing you know, operators. Usually it's mine, but never mind. <laughs> <laughs> there, there, there really is no right answer, right? And the ones that make the right choice for their particular operation, for whatever reason, they're going to do better than ones that make the wrong choice. But again, whether it's a niche fuel, whether it's scrubbers, or whether it's compliant fuel, or whether it's gas oil, it, it, you know, if you make the right choice for your operation, you will succeed. Because we're all in the same boat together, we're all struggling. Let's take two more, one from Israels and one from Martin, and move to the next panelist, if you don't mind. Uh, thank, thank you for a very interesting discussion. Having listened to all of you, and without yet the benefit of hindsight, um, a little thought experiment. Would it have been easier to regulate 200 refineries than 50,000 ships? I, I think the problem with that is it's not just the 600 refineries, right? So then you have the blenders, you know, and we all know what's going to happen. When the price spread blows out, you're going to get opportunistic blenders. And you're going to get people that are in there that are all of a sudden they become experts overnight. And I think it's very, very difficult where you may be able to regulate 600 refineries. I don't think it'll cascade down to be able to regulate effectively. And again, again, my concern is product quality, right? Those opportunistic, opportunistic blenders, they don't care whether the fuel actually works on board. All they care about is when they take that sample upon delivery, does it meet those 16 characteristics and are they safe? Yeah, and right, so also the IMO is not uh, in the business of regulating refineries on land. Right. That's, it, it's been a, a dynamic throughout the history of the organization that it, there tends to be a, a reluctance to regulate ashore. And that conversation was had regarding the possibility of regulating refineries in 2016 and rejected. Now, there is a proposal that will be considered by um, this next Marine Environment Protection Committee from a number of the NGOs, BIMCO, Intertanko, ICS, uh, notably not IVIA, is not a co-sponsor of the paper, that talks about a licensing program that member states would initiate with respect to <coughs> delivery of fuels. Now, where that goes is going to be up to um, uh, how the member states react to that, and I really can't speculate on that, but that proposal is out there. Martin Kraft, FEDNAV. I'd like to piggyback on something which uh, Knut had mentioned before, and that is the uh, three dimensions of the scrubber challenge. I think you mentioned technological, political, and commercial, and I think we are missing out a major dimension here, and that is the operational. That is the seafarers, the crew on board, and due to the lack of time, I'm not going to ask the question what we as a community and we as an uh, industry are going to do to uh, mitigate that risk. But I strongly encourage all of us not to take scrubbers just as granted and we install them and they're working. That is on the back of the seafarers, on the crew members which we, on who we have already offloaded all the technology and all the complexities of this world. And now we add another major component to that. So have mercy with them and, and treat them well and work yeah. around to support them. Yeah, and, and just to that point, very briefly, we, we thought long and hard about the complexities of scrubbers. 
and engineering simplicity and operational simplicity were one of the major factors in our choice of manufacturer. That's all the time we have. Thank you very much to our panelists, and thank you for your attention today. Thank you.